Welcome to the Sperber Prize Podcast. I'm David Escobar. This season, I'll be talking to the winner and a few of the finalists for the Sperber Prize, which is Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs, detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. We often think of journalism as being a watchdog over injustice. But during Hitler's rise to power, many news outlets did quite the opposite. This year's Sperber Prize winning book, The Newspaper Axis, Six Press Barons Who Enabled Hitler, dives deep into the role that the US and UK's biggest newspapers played in the Nazi propaganda machine. But how exactly does a newspaper uplift fascism? And what lessons can today's media learn from this history? Joining me now to talk more about the book is this year's Sperber Prize winner and professor of history at the University of California, Davis, Catherine Olmsted. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So can we just start with a little bit of how you became interested in general in this whole idea of the newspaper axis? Well, as you mentioned, um, the book before I wrote this one was called Right Out of California, and it was about... Uh, the conservatives in California in the 1930s, when California politics was really very right-leaning at that time, um, the conservatives in California who fought against Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and in particular tried to stop labor organization in California, very anti-union politics. Mm. And one of the prime movers in that story was William Randolph Hearst, who was a Californian and you know one of the most powerful uh, media moguls of his age or any age, really. Uh, he owned the equivalent of a national newspaper in that he had, at various times, up to 28 newspapers across the country, and uh, they would coordinate national and international coverage. So whether you were in Atlanta or San Francisco or New York, you would read in the Hearst papers, you'd read the same national or international stories. And uh, I was very interested in how Hearst, by that point, he had not started out that way, but by the end of his life in the 1930s, had become a real right-wing figure, very anti-union, anti-communist. And I had looked at his archives, I looked at letters about him and other people's archives, and I decided that uh, I wanted to do a book on how he had influenced American politics. And once I started really getting into that, getting into Hearst and his influence on domestic politics, I started then looking at so many of the newspaper publishers at the time, the most powerful, were uh, very right-wing. And so I was at first thinking of doing a book on domestic politics, but that struck me as not that interesting because the story was you have very rich men who are opposed to the welfare state in you know, union organization. So it's sort of obvious. But less obvious was the way they influenced foreign policy. They were very, very isolationist. And then once I started looking at, I, I ultimately settled on four newspaper publishers uh, in the 1930s. Once I started really looking at them, I noticed that they had uh, connections across the Atlantic. And similarly, the most powerful newspaper publishers, press barons in England, were also uh, either overtly pro-fascist or very pro-appeasement. 
And so I began looking at that transnational story of media moguls and how they tried to pressure their governments to um, do as little as possible when Hitler was threatening the rest of Europe. So I kind of want to jump into something you're saying. Um, I guess the overall argument of this book, kind of something that, you know, we're still almost grappling with today. It's the idea that far right wing media kind of has roots in these these newspapers. Um, That's kind of a larger overarching theme. So maybe let's rewind a little bit, maybe get into a little bit more of the specifics of the people behind these newspapers. Can you just tell me a little bit about some of the specific people that you talk about in the book that were running newspapers during the 1930s? Sure. So this turned out to be a collective biography of six press barons, four Americans and two uh, Britons. Uh, the uh, Americans included Hearst, who was one of the richest men of the time, one of the most politically powerful, in addition to owning those uh, you know, 20-something newspapers at various times in his career. He also owned magazines. He owned uh, a feature film studio. He owned a uh, documentary, a newsreel company, which really influenced how Americans in the 1930s would see the news, um, as well as, you know, he's famous for having Curse Castle and buying up all kinds of European art. So he's a very um, eccentric, rich person, but he was known at the time for being conservative, right-wing, anti-communist, and being one of the richest people in the United States. So he's one of them. But then there are also three Americ- three other Americans who were related to each other. They were all the grandchildren of a man named Joseph Medill, who had been one of the founders of the Republican Party, a big booster of Abraham Lincoln early in his career, had been the mayor of Chicago, and also the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. And he had three grandchildren. Um, the two boys were Joseph Patterson, um, who started the tabloid newspaper, the New York Daily News, uh, which was America's first tabloid and became the best-selling newspaper in American history then or since. Uh, his cousin, Robert McCormick, who uh, took over the Chicago Tribune itself. And then Joe's sister, Eleanor Patterson, uh, who was at first Hearst editor for his Washington, D.C. newspaper, and then she bought him out and she became the, the owner of the Washington Times-Herald. Uh, so there, those four, the, the Patterson, McCormicks, and Hearst. And then uh, in the U.K., I look at two um, powerful press barons. One was Lord Harold Rothermere, who owned the Daily Mail of London, that was the best-selling newspaper in the world at the beginning of the 1930s. And Lord Rothermere was um, very impressed by Hitler and Mussolini and by British fascists. He wrote many admiring stories about the fascists, even up through 1938. And uh, Lord Max Beaverbrook, who owned the Daily Express, which overtook the Daily Mail in circulation by the end of the 1930s. And Beaverbrook was not a fascist, but he was very much in favor of appeasement. So I look at those six and how they use the power of the press, the power of the media, to shape the political environment and to shape their government's foreign policies. You're making this claim that these are newspapers that are almost enabling Hitler. And I'm kind of curious, in what ways can a newspaper enable 
a fascist dictator? Like that, that might be a silly question, but I feel almost, um, I almost have to ask specifically, how do you use the news media to enable fascism? Because I feel almost in my experience, sometimes fascists don't like the media. Right. Well, uh, the media was very different back then. Um, and Hitler in particular was very good at courting the media. And, uh, well, first of all, he completely controlled the media in Germany. So he had no reason to, to dislike it because there was no free press there. Um, but also, for example, with Lord Rothermere, what he did was invite him to Berlin to spend time with him, to have dinner with him, and then later to um, his retreat at Berchtesgaden. And Rothermere and Hitler, you know, were friends. They 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 hung out, um, and uh, Rothermere became convinced that Hitler had the key to um, figuring out how to deal with communism. You know, this was Rothermere's big concern as he was very much worried that the Soviet Union would sweep into Western Europe and would topple all of the governments there and seize the property of capitalists like Lord Rothermere. And so he thought Hitler knows how to deal with communists. It's to set up a really tough system, hardline system that can control elements that could undermine uh, the power of capital. So so Hitler would, would court men like this. Um, he also, there were American press barons that he uh, met with and impressed, including Hearst. So he went out of his way to tell the men who owned, and they were almost all men except for Sissy Patterson, um, to uh, the men who owned these newspapers you know, I am like you, uh, an anti-communist. We have common issues. And you should really use the power of your newspaper to say that I am not a threat to, you know, channel my message. And and Hitler actually was a Hearst columnist, a paid uh, Hearst columnist in the early 1930s, uh, as was Mussolini. And so to spread my message of anti-communism, of anti-Bolshevism, and uh, of anti-Semitism. You know, how the, the Jews, this would be Hitler talking, were, uh, you know, allied with the Communist Party and a, and a threat to order and, and capital and democracy uh, throughout the world. So Hitler reached out to these men that he saw as his potential allies. And what they did in response was to write editorials or to shape their news coverage to say, um, at the beginning, Hearst and Rothermere said, this guy's doing a great job in Germany. No, he totally knows what he's doing, as does Mussolini in Italy. Uh, then later on, when that became untenable, at least for Hearst, then they would write editorials that said, whatever he's up to over there is not our concern. And we should just let him do it. It is none of our business. And if he is setting up all of these anti-Semitic laws and uh, invading his neighbors, that's happening on the continent of Europe, and it has nothing to do with Great Britain or the United States. So that's how they enabled him, is they used their power of persuasion to try to um, you know, put their thumb on the scales 
of uh, the anti-interventionists, the isolationists in their governments and tell them whatever Hitler does, you should just allow him to do it because it's not our it's not our affair. I'm curious what I guess the press barons can tell us about the state of domestic policy in the U.S. and also just kind of the attitudes of people in the U.S. Did they mirror each other? Can their opinion be independent of a newspaper trying to persuade them? Or do you feel like they're one and the same? Well, this is a big debate. And, you know, and it's still a debate um, today is to if people consume right wing media, does that make them have right wing views or do they just see the right wing um, news channels or podcasts today say as entertainment? And it doesn't really influence the way that they they vote or they act. That was a debate back then is people said, well, you know, sure, Hearst is always thundering about um, communists and unions. And he's uh, talking about how we completely don't need to worry about fascism abroad. But that doesn't mean that it influences his readers. The people who buy his newspapers are buying them because they like the, the sports, the, the comics. And, uh, you know, they're reading the feature stories and they're not really reading the editorial page or if they do, they're not uh, internalizing those views. So that's what that was the counter argument back then. Um, you know, of course, it's difficult to prove, um, especially when you go back in time. You really you don't start with scientific polling until the mid night uh, or late 1930s. So it's difficult to tell. But I think. That historians have shown that public opinion was quite malleable, was quite flexible regarding foreign affairs uh, in the late 1930s in both the UK and the US, because people weren't paying that much attention at first. And so they were uh, willing to accept the views that they were reading in the newspapers, um, especially when it sort of confirmed their existing bias. Like, why would we want to get involved in another war uh, against Germany? So it's probably, it makes sense what the newspapers are telling us that it's not our business. Um, but certainly when you look at the percentage of the polls of the readers of these newspapers versus the people who were in other circulation areas, it's clear that they were more isolationist. They were more right-wing. The people who bought and read the Hearst newspapers were more right-wing than people who consumed other media. But the people who bought Hearst newspapers, uh, that was a tremendous number. It was a, about 30 million a week in, at a time when the country had, you know, maybe 130 million people. And so I guess I'm curious in that regard as well. You know, we're talking even, I guess, during the war, but also after, did these media giants face any consequences for these kind of narratives that they pushed, even in the jury of public opinion. I I'm curious if that's something that, you know, did their reputation take a hit? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, first of all, there were uh, anti-fascists in the 30s who tried to push back, particularly in the U.S. So there was a coordinated nationwide attempt to boycott Hearst newspapers Hearst magazines, Hearst newsreels. Uh, and uh, there were many groups that passed out cards, postcards that people would sign and send in 
pledging not to buy uh, any Hearst products. And this did apparently have some effect. Certainly Hearst circulation started to decline right around 1935. And um, he, uh, so he did suffer some consequences that way. And you could say that he suffered a, a major reputational blow uh, with Citizen Kane, the movie in 1941 when Orson Welles uh, did this biopic that was a thinly disguised version of Hearst um, that Hearst just hated. And so for people who saw that movie and knew it was supposed to be Hearst, uh, you know, of course, that hurt his historical legacy. But his circulation did eventually rebound and he, you know, he had to sell off a lot of his art. He briefly went into bankruptcy, but, you know, it wasn't like he... Um, you know, was out on the street at all. Um, he did have to sell some of his newspapers. So you could say he suffered some consequences. Uh, there was also a coordinated boycott campaign against the New York Daily News, especially in 1940 and 41, when the American public was becoming more inclined to see the value of intervening uh, against the Nazis. And so there was... Um, uh, a coordinated campaign to boycott the Daily News in New York City, where there's a huge Jewish population. And a lot of those Jews perceived the Daily News to be anti-Semitic. However, uh, in Patterson's private papers, I found lots of letters about this campaign and the, the belief of Patterson, the publisher himself, and a lot of his executives was that this didn't have any effect on their bottom line that maybe they lost some readers, but then they also got some other readers who liked their point of view. Um, and they also did some internal polling that showed that uh, about 40% of their readers read the editorial page and said it was one of their favorite parts. Now, 40% might not seem like that much, but it really it was a lot more than read uh, the editorial pages of other newspapers. So the Daily News is, you know, really hardline, hyper-nationalist, uh, isolationist stance did help it win readers. Um, and then finally, I would say in the UK, it's kind of an interesting story about whether they, they paid the consequences or not. Lord Rothermere, as I said, was very pro-Hitler and even up right before the war started, he was writing private letters to Hitler that were very sycophantic. And um, the uh, British Secret Service was intercepting them and knew about these letters. And Rothermere's son and his friends worried that he would actually be interned during the war as a Nazi sympathizer. And so, uh, but because he was very well connected, they managed to spirit him away uh, and gave him this mission to the United States and Canada to inspect munition plants. Um, so that he was actually out of the country. And he was, by that point, very elderly and in poor health, and he actually died while he was uh, over on his North American trip. So he could have um, paid the consequences, but he didn't. I, I just have two more questions for you, a little bit more in the broader sense of journalism as a whole and kind of pertaining to your own opinion. The idea of ethics in journalism is a you know, I would say it's a it's a core idea in this book, and I'm curious, it, it kind of in your research and 
um, in your own experience as well. How did these newspaper barons navigate their journalistic responsibilities while also, you know, kind of giving into Hitler's um, into Hitler's ideology? And what does that really tell us about the idea of media ownership in general? Well, uh, it's really a fascinating story of how they uh, were how they related to the um, ideal of objective journalism. So just to briefly give you the backstory, in the 19th century, newspapers were very partisan. Like they were, you know, they often had Democrat or Republican in their in their title. And they were just unabashedly pro one party or the other and made no pretense of we're going to be neutral in covering the news. But by the early 20th century, that was becoming out of fashion. And journalists wanted to be objective and they wanted to be able to tell their readers, we are just giving you the facts and you will decide. And so even by the 1920s, there were journalism associations that adopted codes of ethics that said, we will strive to objectivity. And these guys that I write about, they were not on that train, right? They, they were very much opposed to the idea of objectivity, but it was becoming difficult for them to say that. Like they, they couldn't go out and give a speech in which they said, who cares about objectivity? I own this newspaper. I tell my, my people what to write. But, you know, in polls of other journalists, uh, these polls show that, that the Hearst newspapers and McCormick's Chicago Tribune in particular were ranked as the worst in the country for being objective. Other journalists viewed them as um, completely under the control of the men who owned them. And Kirst and McCormick and, and Patterson and even the the equivalents in Great Britain, they all viewed um, this as kind of like part of their privilege. They bought a newspaper to influence public debate. They were not going to hesitate to send off memos to reporters saying, no, don't write that story or I don't like the way you wrote that story. Don't do it again. Um, and some of them, McCormick in particular, would write several memos a day saying, you know, what he liked and disliked about the newspaper and insisting that his reporters take a certain line. You know, for example, um, and Hearst did this too. Uh, Hearst uh, decreed about midway through uh, Franklin Roosevelt's first term that they weren't going to call it the New Deal anymore. They were going to call it the Raw Deal. And this is how they were supposed to refer to it, you know, just in straight news stories. So they they had no... Um, compunction about uh, using their power as owners to tell their employees what words to use, how to cover stories to influence uh, the public. Mm. Now, this that attitude largely fell out of favor by the 1950s. Um, all of these press barons died by the early 1960s, and their successors were much more attuned to the need to uh, be objective, not only as an ideal, but because of uh, you could sell more newspapers that way. If you had a neutral political perspective, then people were more, you had a whole spectrum of people who could buy your newspapers. So, uh, but at the time, uh, it was very much a matter of if you own the newspaper, you can tell the people who work for it what to say. I, that that's so fascinating about the idea of ownership, and 
I just see this line of continuity between what you're talking about and what we deal with now in the media. And so I'm curious about your thoughts. Um, how much similarity do you see between these mass circulated newspapers of the 30s and our current media landscape, especially when it comes to bolstering populist ideals or fascist ideals in our modern world? Yes. Well, I would say that if you look at the rhetoric of the Hearst newspapers of the New York Daily News in the 1930s and early 1940s, you will see the same sort of rhetoric that you hear on Fox News today. Very, very ultra-nationalist, um, America first. This was a phrase they used all the time. Anti-internationalist, believing that the United States should not engage with the rest of the world except when necessary to control it, to dominate it. So what is it that they are, um, they were anti-imperialist in the 1930s. They were very much in favor of controlling, say, Latin American countries. They weren't anti-militarist at all, but they did believe that the United States um, was better than any other country in the world and that it had the right to impose its system and values on, on everyone else. And that all uh, American leaders should uh, promote an America first foreign policy. So uh, the the language is very familiar and you can still hear echoes of it today. I mean, these these publishers were in many ways the Fox News of the 1930s. Thanks again to Catherine Olmsted for our lovely conversation, and thank you for tuning in. I'm David Escobar, and this is the Sperber Prize Podcast. <laughs>